Welcome to the smartest doctor in the room with your host, Dr. Dean Mitchell, interviewing the leading doctors in the country to get insights into the best medical treatments available today. Not everyone has access to the best specialists, but you can advocate for yourself and learn the right questions to ask your doctor and the best possible treatment options. Remember, what you know can make a difference in your healthcare. Welcome to The Smartest Doctor in the Room. I'm your host, Dr. Dean Mitchell. Hormone facts. We can lose up to about 25% of our hormones as we age. But does it mean we should allow ourselves to become ill or less vital? Hormones are critical for a healthy, functioning body. It's well known that hormone deficiencies can lead to common illnesses such as hypothyroidism and the underactive thyroid, or a less common condition called adrenal insufficiency. Hormone deficiencies can lead to insidious symptoms like chronic fatigue or depressed mood. Endocrinologists are the specialists in this area, but they tend to be a very conservative group of doctors, meaning they take the guidelines and you know, the hormone ranges very strictly when considering or diagnosing a patient deficient in hormones and whether they should have them replaced. On the other end of the spectrum, there's a new specialty of anti-aging doctors who are very aggressive or actively replacing hormones to have patients remain vital. Who is right? Maybe we're going to get a better idea today after today's podcast. My guest today is Dr. Theodore Friedman. He's a nationally known endocrinologist, a professor at Charles Drew University in Southern California. He is also the author of a book that in the past I'd like to use, The Everything Guide to Thyroid Disease. And his website, The Better Hormone Health, has a wealth of information, especially with videos, to explain some of these complex subjects. So I'm looking forward to discussing a range of hormone issues with him as well. So with that, I'd like to welcome Dr. Theodore Friedman to the podcast. Thank you, Dean. A couple of corrections. First of my website's Good Hormone Health. Maybe better is the better. Oh, right okay. <laughs> okay, good hormone health. That's important. Right. And I like that your copy of my uh, thyroid book just looks pretty worn. So at least you looked at it. So that's Yeah, no, I did read through it. You mentioned it might be a little bit dated, but you know what? It really explained a lot of things in very uh, clear terms. Thank and you. it's very readable. I like to prepare before these podcasts. So I have my other textbooks that I was looking at, but it was, it was very practical and useful. Mm-hmm. I also wrote a textbook for Cecil Essentials of Medicine, which oh, really? is the most widely used, oh, yes. I think, medical school textbook for the adrenal and thyroid chapters as well. Oh, that's very impressive. I, I, I don't know if my listeners could appreciate that, but Cecil's and Harrison's were like the tomb volumes of medicine that in medical school, like essentially the medical school Bible. I want to start first. I always like to ask my, my guests a, a sort of background question. I'm always interested how you know, my doctor colleagues choose a particular specialty because I think it reflects a lot about Mm -hmm. that person. How did you choose endocrinology uh, to be your specialty? That's a good question, Dean. I was always interested in sort of like the research and the science behind things, unraveling the mysteries. So I was an MD-PhD student. My PhD was in pharmacology. I understood and discovered a new enzyme that involves in breaking down thyroid troponin releasing hormone or TRH which is a brain hormone that ultimately regulates the thyroid. And I thought these brain hormones, you know, would be up and coming field, that they would turn out, they affect your mood, as you said, they affect your energy, your lifestyle, maybe whether you like brown hair or blue hair or horses versus dogs or something like that. I thought the brain hormones really have a Mm. key role in understanding your behavior. 
Not sure that's true, but I'm very interested in them. So I thought the best way to study brain hormones is to be an endocrinologist. I think I briefly toyed at the idea of neurology or psychiatry, but I like endocrinology partially because I like the numbers and looking at you know values, interpreting people's values. Psychiatry, neurology, you know, it's it's less of an exact science. You're right. Less of an exact. Not, it's not as precise. Yes. Precise, factual. I also liked a lot of detective work in endocrinology, and I like that you really help people. I mean, again, neurology, you know, you have people with strokes and Parkinson's. They can't really help them too much. I mean, a little bit. In but endocrinology, right. you can take a you know person who's pretty debilitated and turn them around and really have much higher quality of life. You hit all of the things we're going to talk about because it is fascinating with endocrinology. I think it's such an overlooked area of medicine. My background's in infectious disease, immunology, and allergy. So again, I was so looking forward to speaking to you is because I tend to look at the external world. What is it? Is it an infectious agent? Is it an allergen? Is it something that's inhibited the immune system? And endocrinology, as I mentioned in, in the introduction, it's within us. It's our hormones, but th there are things that can cause it to get depleted. It can get depleted naturally over time. I love reading Lisa Sanders. You know, she does the diagnosis column in the New York Times about those mysterious cases. And a lot of times, some of the most interesting cases are an endocrinology case, yeah. essentially, where some hormone was slowly being depleted. And that's why I, you know, again, I use the term insidious. It can come on very slowly, uh, mm -hmm. versus a dramatic when you've had an infection or an anaphylactic reaction. Those are pretty obvious. So let's get to the first gland that I want to discuss. And it's kind of funny, actually, too. I learned about you, and I have that here also, about 12 years ago or so, I used to get a subscription to the bottom line. Uh, it was a very good little throwaway. Right, right, did, great. I did with it, business yeah. and it did health. And they had a little article that you had contributed to about adrenal, adrenal. function. And right. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring out a couple of really key points. So just so our listeners know, the adrenal gland is a small gland that sits on top of our kidneys. And I like to think sometimes it's like the forgotten gland. You know, everybody will get to, we, everybody knows about thyroid, 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 thyroid. But the adrenal gland is a very important gland. I mean, it, it secretes certain hormones that have to do with life-threatening issues like epinephrine. It also releases what we call the stress hormones, such as cortisol and aldosterone. We'll get into that. People may have heard, you know, that extreme form of adrenal disease called Addison's disease, John F. Kennedy supposedly had. And right. he almost died from what I heard. He was having a back operation and the doctors at New York Hospital didn't realize he had that and it could be fatal. So I'm sure in your career, you have treated, I'm sure in the hospital, you've consulted on those cases. Uh, but what I'm more interested in, I think a lot of my listeners are, the more subtle, quote, adrenal insufficiency, when the adrenal glands may not be working as the thyroid in an underactive way. So I want to ask you after that whole long uh, <laughs> diatribe, what do you do when you're assessing someone for their adrenal function or adrenal disease? What tests do you do? How do you clinically assess them? So I'm glad you brought up my bottom line article. I refer to it a lot. Um, do you really? Yeah. <laughs> it, it, it talks about the sort of the forgot, you know, adrenals might be the forgotten gland. Aldosterone is the forgotten adrenal hormone. Yeah. So everybody knows about cortisol. Cortisol is a stress hormone. It's life requiring. If you don't have cortisol, you can die. Right. The other one that I talked about in the bottom line article is aldosterone. Yeah. Aldosterone is a salt regulating hormone. And so if you don't have aldosterone, you would have symptoms like dizziness, lightheadedness, palpitations. 
you lose salt in your urine, so therefore your body gets is a little depleted of salt. You have low blood pressure and high pulse. A lot of people have this fashionable diagnosis of POTS, neurotensely mediated hypotension. Right. Um, those are, I think, all related to low aldosterone. I mm. find that a lot of you know younger women, maybe thinner, not necessarily thin, they have this. They go around dizzy when they stand up, lightheaded, about to pass out, very poor quality of life. Nobody measures these aldosterones. My first week, my second unit of residency, I was in intensive care unit. The, my attending told me, the first thing you think about is the person sick or not sick. The second thing you should think about is the person dry or wet. And I sort of use that as an analogy, you know, high blood pressure, low blood pressure, volume depleted. And I think we forget about that. You need to have an adequate blood volume going to your brain. Otherwise, you get brain fog, you're dizzy when you stand up, you're lightheaded, you compensate with palpitation. You just don't do well. You need mm-hmm. to perfuse all your organs, especially your brain. And the way you do that is to have adequate blood pressure and adequate red blood well, cells. L- let me stop you on something, because this is really important points that you're making, and it's great teaching. It's like almost going through rounds. Weakness and fatigue are common symptoms. Brain fog, right, obviously, yeah. we're hearing, I see a lot of patients with chronic fatigue that complain of this. Obviously, now in COVID, we're hearing this. Now, low blood pressure also, as you can appreciate, is fairly common in a lot of young women, especially mm-hmm. even thin women. I mean, it's not unusual right. to see them 100 over 70. If I see it in a man, or 90 over 70 in a man, then it gets my attention. In a mm-hmm. woman, it's trickier. And, and this is the other point I'd like to bring out because I think it, mm-hmm. people would be shocked how doctors sometimes look at things. Today, when we get labs and patients get the labs as well, they get it faster than we do actually, <laughs> is mm-hmm. that it, it typically says out of range, high, low. Now I know I've never seen, even with a low aldosterone, that they flag this because Essentially, I think they say you could have an aldosterone of zero, right? I mean, it wasn't for me. Right. So your article, when you say when the aldosterone is less than five, to start thinking about an aldosterone deficiency, because typically it'll come back aldosterone three, five, and it doesn't flag right. it as low. Do you think that's one of the issues? Yeah, I think so. And it's interesting. They used to flag it, and they changed it. And I asked yeah. the uh, lab director of esoterics <laughs> why they changed it. He didn't really give me a good answer, but I think that's part of the problem is we don't look for low aldosterone. We don't, very few people measure aldosterone. I think it's common. I think the good news is it's treatable. So if somebody has this low aldosterone, low blood pressure, I start by giving them more salt. You know, they crave salt. Their body's telling them they need more salt. Have them take more salt. And then I think part of what you alluded to a little before is people think sort of all or nothing. People know that in people with hypertension, salt's bad for you. But if you have hypotension, right. you have low blood pressure, there's yeah. no reason to shy away from it. If your you know, I saw... It, take it. I was really thinking of you. I saw a patient of mine a year ago. She came to me from Massachusetts. She came down to New York because she was suffering with debilitating fatigue. She was actually a nursing student and it was crazy. She had been seen at Mass General, a lot of really good places. Mm -hmm. And when she came down, I took a really detailed history and everything. And again, like as part of my work of fatigue, I am looking at these adrenal hormones, which we're going to get into. And she had an aldosterone of three. And then I said, do you like crave salt? She goes, oh my God. She goes, I can't go a day without eating tons of pretzels and this and that, right. whatever. Then I will get to this. Obviously, salt was just not enough. We had to use a medication, Florinef. Right, exactly. Life. I mean, she just, you know, it was life changing. This aldosterone should be measured like early in the morning, similar to cortisol, or does it matter? Yeah, I, I usually measure early in the morning. It, it does decline throughout the day, just like cortisol does. It's good to measure in the morning. And you want to measure renin with it. And simplistically, uh, I try to break into different types of categories. 
You can have low aldosterone, high renin. The renin comes with the kidneys. If you have low renin and high aldosterone, it means your adrenals aren't working. If you have low renin and low aldo, it means the message from your brain and your pituitary is not going to the kidneys and not going to the adrenals. And then you'd have low renin and low aldo or hyporenemia, high aldosterone. Why would you have a low renin and low aldosterone? Why would you? Well, there's, there are some messages that go, I don't think it's that well understood, either from the pituitary or the brain that regulate renin. Some people don't have, aren't making those messages that well. And why do you think also, too, like against some of these young people, whatever, to have low aldosterone? Are the cells failing? Do you think it's some type of stress or external thing that's damaged the cells? I, I don't think so. I think it's just that that message is properly. There are some genetic conditions, certainly. There's one called Barter syndrome and another one called Gittleman syndrome that are definitely underdiagnosed. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it's, it's a common thing that people aren't looking for okay. and you can treat it very easily. Mm-hmm. I have to believe too, when people are under severe, severe stress, you know, and mm-hmm. that the adrenals have to me would be a gland, probably like the thyroid also we'll get to that, that, I mean, I think these endocrine glands get really affected because I think they're more and more we're understanding the immune system is connected to the nervous system. And I'm sure there've been proof that the endocrine system is con- clearly connected to the immune system because we know cortisol, which definitely you right. talk about cortisol. So what about with cortisol? But, uh, yeah. Right, but I do, I do want to clarify a, a concept that I think is incorrect that a lot of people okay. sell or try to promote is this adrenal fatigue. Okay. So when you're under stress, your adrenals work harder. They make more cortisol, not less cortisol. Right. And under most types of stress, they're going to make more cortisol. And there's a very specific, we'll talk about adrenal insufficiency, the cortisol deficiency, but there's a very specific set of symptoms of cortisol deficiency. And these are nauseousness, vomiting, diarrhea, abdominal pain, weight loss, joint pain. So unless a person has most of those symptoms, it's unlikely for them to have cortisol deficiency. I think the aldosterone deficiency, completely different set of symptoms, is probably more common. And there, there can be separate axes. This you can have the aldo deficiency and not the cortisol, and the cortisol not the aldo, or you can have both. Are they made from different cells in the adrenal gland? Or yes, I know it's the cortex, they but they're actually different cells that are making those. Right, right. There's different zones of the adrenal that makes the different cells, and they're regulated differently. Okay. And what about with cortisol? I don't know if they flag that either. I mean, if you see a cortisol, an AM cortisol less than what ten or something, does that start to, or five? I would say maybe five or six. Five or six. That also would sort of set off your... Right, especially with the right set of symptoms. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. And what about also, just to talk about this too, because again, we see this a lot. There are a lot of these companies that make those salivary cortisols, which supposedly are supposed to be better because they don't have the protein binding issue, but they do like sort of a 16-hour AM all throughout the day and along with DHEA. Do you find those useful? No, not at all. I don't think they're worth the paper on. Okay. I've had patients with Cushing, which is high cortisol. Those tests have shown low cortisol. Okay, I've so they're not they're the useless. Okay. They're pretty right. useless. No, it's good to dispel that. You know, people people go right. to sometimes functional medicine doctors, which is, you know, right. like your area got invaded by functional medicine, anti-aging. I'm really glad to talk mm-hmm. to you because I want to clear up. You know, I mean, look, if something is useful, yeah, I don't see why we shouldn't be progressive and look at it. But if it's not, right. you know, I, I know in my areas of allergy also, there's just a lot of bogus tests that are being done, exactly. you know, and just, you know, they're trying to substantiate right. you know, so it doesn't exist. The, the standard labs, LabCorp and Quest, you could do a salary cortisol. I don't find it as helpful as the blood. I think the blood's are more standardized. There's a good point that you brought up. The cortisol is related to cortisol binding globulin. 
you can measure that also if you're concerned. Someone on birth control pills has a high cortisol binding globin, so the cortisol may look falsely high, but for most, the cortisol is pretty reliable. Okay. What about when we go a little bit higher of the signaling molecules, as you talk about, let's say ACTH, which stimulates the adrenal gland. Right. And right. also like want to look about CRH, which we, you know, we never order. Is that even a useful test? Is it, are the labs good right. at doing but these no, things? The, lab, the lab's not good at it, first of all. And second of all, the CRH is in your brain. So unless you want to take a brain sample. Oh, so they can't, they can't measure that at all? They can, but it doesn't really reflect what's in your brain. Okay. Not the right thing. We've measured it sometimes in the blood that drains the pituitary called the patrols of sinuses. I had mm-hmm. a paper about it there. But in general, it's, it's hard to measure. Well, ACTH is not hard to measure, right? That's a useful test. Right. The ACTH but is that from the useful. brain also or no? No, ACTH comes from the pituitary. Oh, the two, oh so the CRH is from the brain. Okay. Mm-hmm. Right. So it's on the other side of the blood-brain barrier. Okay. And it helps you distinguish what type of adrenal insufficiency you have. If you have an adrenal cause of it, you would have a high ACTH and a low cortisol. Mm-hmm. If you have a pituitary cause, you would have a low ACTH and a low cortisol. Mm-hmm. So it is quite helpful to measure. Yeah. Are urinary tests helpful at all too, looking at the urinary sodium or potassium or, or the cortisol? Not really, no. The cortisol is helpful though. You could do a 24-hour urinary cortisol. That's quite helpful. For what? What would that help you with? Mostly for high cortisol. Okay. So like in Cushing's or something? Okay. Yeah, in Cushing's, right. It's a, you know, sometimes it's, it's helpful for low cortisol states. Okay. Let's talk about adrenal replacement. And as you know, too, with any hormones, it's, it's a serious consideration. You know, again, I've seen sometimes some, some functional medicine doctors just putting people on cortisone to give, give them a little bit of boost, you know, but you know that, especially with cortisone, it's once you're on it, your body stops making its own to some exactly. degree exactly. and you got to be very right. careful. So tell me, you can start with either the Cortef or aldosterone on the floor. And like, what do you do to base, you know, obviously you make a clinical decision and then right. how do you decide on, let's say, let's say with Cortef, you know, if you're going to replace cortisol on somebody, how do you decide? Again, with the adrenal aldosterone, I start with salt. You can give licorice root. Yes. You find it helpful? Very helpful. It blocks the enzyme that breaks down cortisol in the kidney, so it binds the aldosterone receptor in the kidney. What do you have them take it as a tea or a supplement? Like- uh, it's a, a supplement. Okay. You can get it on Amazon very easily. Okay, the interesting. Tea okay, too. So I start with that. I start with the licorice root, and then I would I could add the fludrocortisone. It's much easier to get off of than the cortisol. It's a mineral corticoid, not a glucocorticoid, mm-hmm. so it's much more benign. The cortisol itself, I agree with you. Too many people put people on it, and then they have trouble getting off of it. They go on higher and higher doses. Cortisol is a very dangerous drug. It gives people, you know, really all problems in society. It gives you weight gain. It gives you uh, diabetes. It's called a glucocorticoid, which means it raises your glucose level. It's a very dangerous drug. I think very carefully before I put somebody on it. Okay, let's go back to Florina for a second because the dosing appears to be very, very low. Look, like I know it comes like a 0.1 milligram. I think you've mentioned exactly. giving it, starting at a half a dose. Does a patient take it every day? I know sometimes people have said take it every other day, but what do they do in the day between? I mean, what's... Yeah, I usually have people take it every day. I like to have it, try to take it twice a day because it doesn't, like cortisol has a pretty short half-life. Oh, really? Okay, So interesting. If you give it twice a day, you can give a half a pill twice a day. And what you should see is hopefully, I mean, I've done this with a few patients, seen some dramatic responses. So you should see their blood pressure come up. You should see their energy right. come up a little bit, right? Exactly, exactly. So I want to uh, just briefly mention this before we get off the aldosterone, the blood pressure issue. It's another very important test to do. Again, it's a women's issue. It's the ferritin test. Ah, yes. I like ferritin. Right. The ferritin test measures your iron stores. Right. So many doctors measure the CBC 
They look at the hematocrit. That's almost always normal unless you have some kind of active GI bleeding or you're really sick. Right. For outpatient people, the ferritin measures your iron stores as much more sensitive than the CBC. Is that in the liver, the iron stores, or is it in the bone? Yeah. It's in the liver or both? Both, I would say. Right. So it's a blood test. Reflects both. Right. If you have liver disease, it can go up falsely high. Inflammation can be falsely high. But if it's low, it's low. And because women lose a pint of blood a month for, let's say, starting at age 10 to 50, 40 years of losing that pint of blood, most women are iron depleted. Mm -hmm. Most men are not. Most women are. Most women need iron. And if you don't have that iron, you don't get carry your blood cells to your brain and you feel tired, that brain fog, that lightheaded, that fatigue. Again, it's a very easy fix. I mean, you can measure somebody's ferritin, give them some iron back, and they'll be remarkably better. I've seen some articles that say that people are falsely diagnosed with chronic fatigue syndrome and fibromyalgia, mm. hypothyroidism even. It actually, the iron's needed as a cofactor for your thyroid hormone to work. Right. I use the iron and the ferritin with the salt and the licorice root and the fludro to get people's blood volume up. It works very well together. That's a super important point. I, I do. I look at ferritin very carefully. Again, I think it's another underutilized test. Interestingly, with COVID, it's one of the early markers that's showing severe inflammation. And as you pointed out, with especially young women who are continually losing blood every month from their menstrual cycle, this definitely affects their energy. I actually did a whole podcast on that with a doctor from Maryland. He was a really big proponent of IV iron for at least one or two treatments because he just felt yeah. absorption is not good. Exactly. I think that's a good point also. Yeah, it was Mike, Michael Auerbach. It was great. It was a really excellent podcast for anybody who wants to listen because I learned so much. You know, Again, we don't realize how these minerals, and now we're talking about hormones, are so important to your internal mm-hmm. health. Let me ask you one of the questions too, which affects something that I used to do a lot with asthmatics. Patients that are taking topical steroids, whether it's the inhaled steroids for asthma, a lot of people using these nasal steroid sprays like, you know, forever, Mm -hmm. Uh, the dermatologist using more and more cortisone creams. How much does that affect the adrenals, would you say? Yeah. So it does get absorbed, certainly less than an oral. I think people should try to limit them. Yeah. I think people can feel a little adrenal insufficient when they're coming off of them. And, you know, they shouldn't be given out willy-nilly either, but they're probably better. Do you have to worry, though? Let's say, I mean, I used to see once in a while articles in my journals that say, you know, a patient going for surgery, you know, has been on inhaled cortisone. Should their surgeon or the anesthesiologist know that they should take uh, a dose of like medrol? You know, just... No. No, shouldn't be a problem. It doesn't suppress it that much, Okay. No. All right, that's good to know. Okay. Yeah. Let's move on to one of your super specialties, thyroid disease. We'll talk about Hashimoto's, which everybody hears about, and hypothyroidism. So the first question I want to ask you, again, it's a little bit of a hypothetical, theoretical thing. Hypothyroidism appears to be one of the most common conditions, endocrine condition, if you discount diabetes, you know, which helps the pancreas. But why do you think this gland is so vulnerable to disease? It's not like we have an iodine deficiency anymore. And fortunately, right. we don't have a Chernobyl going on you know, <laughs> frequently. Why is the thyroid so vulnerable, do you think, if, you, if you've given this some thought? Yeah, yes, I have. So first of all, most people, just to answer that question, most people that have hypothyroidism have Hashimoto's. It's an autoimmune attack or your gland is being attacked by antibodies. Your body uses antibodies to attack foreign things, but in this case, it's attacking itself. So these antibodies are just quite common. And then I think the second thing is people are looking at for it more and diagnosing things early, but often misdiagnosing people. 
And sort of like the same thing with the adrenal, the same with your thyroid. I think I spent half my time figuring out who should go on thyroid medicine and who was put on inappropriately and should go off of it. Okay. And as you alluded to in the, the adrenal, when you take exogenous hormones, your own gland shuts down. Right. So if you're having a healthy gland, you're not hypothyroid, you should let your own gland do its thing. It makes more thyroid hormone different times of the day, different times of the year. It makes T4 and T3. It's better to just leave the gland alone, let the body, a wonderful body, do its thing and make the right amount of hormone. It's only when you have a sick gland, which is usually manifested by the TPO antibody, which is the marker for Hashimoto's, that's when you start getting a sick gland and that's when you need to intervene. We're going to get into testing. Let's just talk about clinical findings. These are common things, fatigue, brittle nails. Of course, women go crazy if it's hair loss. Men, we just take it as it comes. Constipation. Right. In comparison to the lab findings and when you're starting to make a decision about whether to treat somebody, is it important to have the clinical findings or you could just look at the labs and say, you should be treated? No, I think the clinical findings are crucial, especially in sort of borderline cases. We'll talk about again labs in a second, but you have a borderline elevated TSH. The TSH is inversely proportional. So let's say the range goes up to five. You're floating around five. You would treat somebody with symptoms and you wouldn't treat somebody without symptoms. All right. That was the, yeah, that was the kind of the key question. Right. So that's why the symptoms are important. Some people get put on medicine and they don't have symptoms. And, you know, I sort of wonder why they're doing that. Well, yeah, that was my other question to you. I mean, you may be familiar with this, but I've seen, you know, unfortunately from some of the endocrinologists here on the East Coast, they, like I said in the introduction, some of them are extremely conservative. And mm -hmm. a person could have a TSH of six or seven and they're not feeling so great, but it may say on the, the lab up to eight or something or 10 is a normal TSH. Like you would disagree, right? Yeah, yeah. So I think that the TPO antibody is the crucial thing. Again, it's sort of sometimes underutilized tests that would sway me in somebody that has a high TSH. The point that they try to make is that this is called subclinical hypothyroidism. The T4 and T3 are the active hormones. They're normal. You're just treating this high TSH was like compensation. So I think, you know, I think it's not everybody needs to get treated with a TSH of 5.1 if the TSH is up to five, but that antibody is really what sways me the most. I think that should be done and all these borderline cases. Oh, that's a good point. And what about the thyroid sonogram? It's an easy test. It's not done that frequently. Mm -hmm. Do you, don't you think patients should have a baseline? Well, I don't know about a baseline, but... Say so their TSH was five or six, and whether you had antibodies, you'd, well, let's say they have antibodies, let's say before you would put them on thyroid replacement, do you think they should have a baseline sonogram? Well, I think if they, if they have antibodies and the TSH of five or six, I would treat them. I wouldn't get an ultrasound. Because so, I mean, you're saying it wouldn't make a difference. It wouldn't, it wouldn't make a difference. About 10% of the people have Hashimoto's with negative TPO antibody. Those people, I might get the ultrasound. The ultrasound would show this heterogeneous gland that looks like a Hashimoto's gland. Mm -hmm. And what about the thyroid globulin antibody? I think you've mentioned the book. That's not that important yeah, to you? Not important at all. Not at all. Okay. Right. So you wouldn't even order it? Wouldn't order it. Wouldn't order it. It's yeah. only helpful somebody if you're concerned about if somebody has thyroid cancer. Would it be the antibody or just the thyroid globulin level? You get them both. Thyroid and if those are high, you would, well, let me ask you a question though, then suppose, do some of these patients with Hashimoto's, are they prone to getting thyroid cancer? No. So would it, no, it's, it's no, no, it's, it's only used for monitoring people with thyroid cancer. And the reason why it's sort of interesting, there used to be a test called a thyroid microsomal antibody right. that ground up the thyroid and measures the cell part. And it wasn't too good. It wasn't too specific. Mm -hmm. So because that wasn't good, then we came up with a thyroid globulin antibody that sort of complemented the thyroid, thyroid microsomal antibody. Mm -hmm. Now they figured out what was in the thyroid microsomal section that was the antibody was against, and that's the TPO antibody. 
So now that we have the TPO antibody, the thyroglobin antibody okay, is basically useless. Point. Okay, so let's talk about how you treat a patient that you've diagnosed with Hashimoto's hypothyroidism that you feel that they should be treated. Obviously, you know, there's a lot of preparations out there. I mean, probably originally there was just Synthroid. Even before that, there was Armour thyroid, you know, the right. thyroid. So that's right. And now there's Tyrosint and there's NP thyroid. So take us through your expertise, how you decide to... I'll give you a scenario. You have a woman, she's 35 years old. She's more tired than usual. Her hair is starting to pull out in certain places, a little upset about that, brittle nails. And her TSH is a six and she has mm -hmm. TPO antibodies. How would you treat that patient? Yeah. So I think just like there's many drugs for hypertension and there's many drugs, you know, there's different, several drugs for hyperlipidemia. Yeah, I have a choice as an endocrinologist. And I think that's what makes it sort of a little bit of an art. And I think also the second thing is people often know what they want. They read about this. It's not like the dark ages where you know, whatever <laughs> the doctor says. So there's basically sort of three categories. The basic category, which I could often give people, so straightforward people, is the T4, Synthroid, right. Levothyroxine is generic, there's Lovoxyl, there's Tyrosine, which is liquid, which is pure, it has less binders and fillers. A lot of people don't like the binders and the fillers in it. So that they have, there's actually a generic tyrosin now. So the tyrosin helps some people, but some people I would start, especially somebody who's not that symptomatic and maybe has all the problems, I might just start them with levothyroxine. The problem with the levothyroxine is levothyroxine is T4 and the thyroid makes two hormones, T4 and T3. So if your thyroid's not working, it's not making either, both the T4 and T3, and you're sort of hoping that you're going to give them the T4, right. it gets converted to T3, right. sort of makes up for what the body's missing right. and does the job. doesn't happen in that many patients. So it's reasonable to start the T4 in several patients, in patients, new patients, unless they have a preference. But I get a lot of people that come to me are on T4 and they're not doing well. That, I think that's a great point because I had a patient several years ago who for 10 years was on Synthroid. And she just felt lousy. She was fatigued all the time, this and that too. And I switched it to armor. And mm -hmm. within two weeks, she was like a different person. And she was like ready to kill her endocrinologist. She said, oh, this, this armor stuff is all BS, blah, 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 blah. And sometimes it's hard to find someone like yourself who's open to realizing there's different ways to treating these patients. So Exactly. Mm. Studies have shown, it's well known, and endocrinologists talk about this all the time, there's somewhere about 15 or 20% of the people on T4 alone that don't do well. And, you know, the doctors sort of scoot around it. What percentage was that again, you said? What percentage? 15 to 20%. So it's a small percent, but uh, okay. Well, it's not that small. So those are the vocal people. Right. Those are the people that would come to see me and you, and those are the people on the chats and all that. And that's a significant number of people. Yeah. That endocrinologists are just blowing off, basically. Yeah, no, I'm saying that's where they're, they're losing those patients. Right. You made me think about something. I was almost going to laugh. I'm sure Hippocrates used to probably call doctors nature's assistant, but now we're like the patient's assistant, you know, so. <laughs> mm -hmm. Right. All right. When would you use just T3, like a compounded T3? Right. So I would never do that. You would never. Right. So then, so I mentioned the first choice is T4 alone. Yeah. The second option is T4 plus T3. So again, I said that the thyroid makes both of them. You give them the T4 back, so I'll give a little T3 back. Right. The T3 has a short half-life. It has to be given twice a day. So I would give somebody T4 plus some Cytomel or generic lyothyronine twice a day. That often helps for a lot of people too. That's the second option. The third option is the desiccated thyroid. The desiccated thyroid, as you mentioned, was the first thyroid hormone available. 
It was made by Armour, which makes the big ham. Is that right? It's, oh, that, I didn't ever realize that was the connection. That's so funny. <laughs> That's connection. And so they realized they can't give the thyroid from a pig to people because they would get hyperthyroid from it. So when they sold the hams, they removed the thyroid oh, from it. Oh, that's interesting. So they had these leftover <laughs> thyroids available and they realized- Don't make it go to waste. Go, like, don't make it go to waste, exactly. So they recognized they have, <laughs> that they had a product. You had people that are hypothyroid. This is a great solution. So you give them the arm of thyroid. And, you know, it originally had this reputation of being sort of dirty and impure and old fashioned. Part of that was Synthroid became the popular drug in the 60s. It was a major pharmaceutical company that had a lot of promotion on it. So they were pushing the Synthroid to doctors and mm-hmm. taking them out to lunch and all those things. And, yeah. you know, sort of being an old-fashioned doctor was on the desiccated thyroid. Right, and right. And didn't want to be that old-fashioned doctor. Right. So now the desiccated thyroid is making a comeback because people want something, quote, more natural. But is it more natural? I know. That's the only funny thing where people say, I want the natural thyroid, but coming from the pig, is that so natural? I don't know. I mean... Right. I don't know. So it's, it's still from a vat. You know, I think they still manufacture it properly, but people like the idea that it's from a thyroid. But it also has some advantages. There are things in the thyroid that aren't in synthetics. It has a pretty good ratio of T4 to T3. It has these other proteins that may be helpful, T1 and T2 and things like that. And, you know, it sort of mimics a little bit more what the body makes in the synthetic. Is there any difference between Nature Throid and Armor, or they're really basically the yes. same? Okay. So the Armor was the original formulary. And it got rechanged, and people don't like the new formulation. Nature Throid and WP Thyroid are both made by another company called RLC. And both of them, the FDA has shut them down for very uh, minor reasons. Like they have to have 90% of what's on the label, mm-hmm. but they've had like 87%, and one or two of them lots. Okay. So I think there's something political about that. I don't know if it's, uh, mm-hmm. it's really true. Mm-hmm. So there is, those two, I think, are excellent products. I like them better, actually. And I think the important thing to think about with thyroid is what's in the pill. People don't want a bunch of things in it. The tyrosin, the West WP thyroid, and the nature thyroid, they're very pure. Mm. They have very little binders or fillers. Mm. The armor, is, it's okay. And there's another one called MP thyroid. They're both pretty good. I use both of them now that the nature thyroid and the WP thyroid are off the market, but I prefer the WP. I like the WP thyroid the best. What about compounded thyroid? Now, if there's, there's somebody out in California, I won't mention his name, who's very big mm-hmm. on compounding, and he puts a lot of unusual ratios in. You know, yeah. and now again, the ratio is essentially, was it like four to one? It's supposed to be T4 to T3? Um, that's a little bit high, a little bit lower. I forgot, it was like nine to four, the ratio? No, I think it's about 10 to one. 10, 10, to 10 to 1 is what, Nine to that's one. what's in armor? You would say that's what's in? No. That, that, so armor has a little more T3 in it. Okay. And I think the nature through MP a little less than that. But basically, I start people on this, and then I just look at their levels. If they need more T4, it's more T3. Compounded might be from more plant-based substances. So do, No, I don't think no? so. So you don't, you don't use them? You don't use compounded? I, rarely I do. The T3, again, because it has that long, short half-life, Sometimes I get a compound. Yeah, they make so slow-release ones, they, right, yeah. Slow-release. Sometimes I do that, but um, not that often. And okay. then you asked about T3 alone. The T3 doesn't get into the brain. So trying to treat someone's brain fog, it's not going to help you. And the T4 is like the reservoir, and the T3 gives you a boost. So you want to give people the T4, for most part, T4 is the reservoir, and the little T3, if they miss their dose, and they're only on T3, they're not going to do too well. If they miss their dose on T4, it has a long half-life, it's still in their system. 
So I always always give a combination of both of them. Okay. And let me ask you, now this comes up in my practice once in a while. I have a patient on one of the preparations and their TSH is still sky high, sometimes like 30, 50, something crazy. You know, it seems like a legitimate person. They're taking their medication. What is going on there? Right. So they either they're not taking their medicine. It's, it's something's interfering with it. Calcium and iron are the two main things that interfere with it, but PPI is also to degree of Miprazole. Oh, interesting, right. Okay. Can interfere with it. And they may just need more. And also they need it twice a day. Okay. And the day they, they get their thyroid test, should they take their medicine that day or do they not take it that day? Does it matter? It probably shouldn't matter. I like them not to take it. I like to get a baseline mm-hmm. because especially if, if you take it right after your dose of T3, the T3 can be look really quite high. Mm-hmm. T4 is probably not affected by that much, but the T3 can be high. So I like them to take it before. Mm-hmm. All right. We're going to go to the last category, which I hope you'll have an open mind and spirited thought about this. As I mentioned in the introduction, you know, and it's funny, I'm looking at an article here. I was just looking at on Quora. I like to read some stuff. It was showing a graph on melatonin, which is another hormone we really don't have time to talk about today. Maybe it's another point we can, but it's a hormone. And it does drop dramatically as we age. I guess that's why people have so much issues with insomnia. But Mm -hmm. what about things like growth hormone? I mean, there are a lot of these anti-aging doctors saying, you know, why should we be depleted and be more infirmed and testosterone? And obviously women now, they're looking at bioidentical hormones. What's your thoughts on these, quote, anti-aging hormones? Yeah. I think melatonin is a different category. So melatonin, first of all, goes up when you close your eyes and go to bed. Right. And if you're sleeping well, I think the melatonin replacement is reasonable. It's a very, it's a, you know, it's a supplement. It's not really a drug. It's well. It's a hormone. It's a hormone. Though. Yeah. Yeah. So I, th- I think people should, I think melatonin is a great, great medicine for people. Okay. Stop, yeah. Underutilized with little side effects. Okay. In terms of the anti-aging medicines, you know, I'm somewhat cautious on that. You need to do proper, proper testing. For growth hormone, I have a lot of people with pituitary problems who are growth hormone deficient. We do a stimulation test called a glucagon stimulation test. And if they're deficient, I put them on it. And then I replace the, there's a hormone called IGF-1, which is a marker for growth hormone. Well, they say that IGF-1 is very important about not only just anti-aging, but you know inflammation and everything. I remember too, growth hormone, doesn't that cause, let's say if you give growth hormone, doesn't it cause your blood sugar to go up? I mean, isn't it? It can. Most of my patients with growth hormone deficiency, they feel lousy when you treat them, they're exercising better, they're sleeping better, they're eating better, so the blood sugar goes down. But it is it can be a, a cancer promoter. Oh, it can. So I think the key thing is what an endocrinologist does, it takes someone with a low level and puts them up to normal. So a low IGF-1 to normalize it. An anti-aging doctor would take somebody with a normal level and give making them give them a high level, which I don't buy. Do you think it's dangerous? I think it's dangerous. Yeah. Okay. What do you think about vitamin D? We call it vitamin D, but it really is a hormone. And a lot of these functional medicine anti-aging people are recommending people be in the 50, 70 range or more. What's your thoughts on that? I mean, they're saying vitamin D seems to have a lot of immune benefits, even possibly with COVID. Mm-hmm. And the level of being over 30, which is, you know, below 30, you're considered deficient. It also, from what I understand too, I mean, it can affect your calcium. Like if you have a very, very high vitamin D, right? Can't you be more prone to getting mm-hmm. calcium stones? What's your thoughts on vitamin D? First of all, it's the same thing as too much and too little are both bad. And it's important to distinguish between causality and correlations. Okay. So a lot of people have low vitamin D levels. A lot of people with diabetes have low vitamin D levels. A lot of people- Well, on the East Coast, we're not lucky like you in California. We have <laughs> six months, we're in the dark here. Right, right. Even in California, because I don't wear a bathing suit, 
<laughs> I'm out of the sun. I'm not that sun exposed. Okay. So most people have a low vitamin D level. We did a very large, very excellent study that looked at replacing vitamin D in people with low vitamin D levels, people with diabetes, and it didn't affect their progression from pre-diabetes to diabetes. So just because people with diabetes have low levels, treating it doesn't necessarily mean they're better. I think it's the same with most conditions. People with COVID, they're sicker, they're older, they're fatter, all those things, they have low vitamin D levels. But replacing it doesn't make you less likely to have COVID, as far as I know. Well, you don't think of it. Well, I don't know. They started to cite some studies because it helps the immune system. But it, it's interesting. You know, also, I yeah. know the field of allergy is very interesting. They don't really know exactly why, but people with higher vitamin D levels are less prone to severe anaphylaxis and all that Ooh, kind of right. stuff, too. So I think if you look at it that way, you might as well give somebody a optimal level. Well, I was one of these, so, but you're, so you're okay with, let's say, taking two, 3,000 units a day, which is it's kind of quite common right. to get it up to that 50. Well, so I usually like it between 30 and 50. The studies have shown that, again, it's correlations. People that have a higher level of 50 have higher mortality. They die more, they're sicker. So you, you don't want to give too much. Mm. And as you said before, it can give you high calcium levels and kidney stones. So I sort of like it to this 30 to 45 or 30 to 50 level, I think is, 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 is reasonable. And you can take two or 3,000 units a day or so. It's usually getting pretty good to get you up there. And then, you know, people that are lower they over, and people that are overweight, you know, they may need more. Okay. As we get to the conclusion, is there anything you'd like to add that we haven't covered now that I got it correct on good hormone health? Is there some special takeaway that you want the listeners to? Yeah, I mean, I think people shouldn't ignore their, their symptoms. I think they should, if they're not feeling well, they're tired and they're run down, and they should consider seeing an endocrinologist, get their hormones checked, start with your thyroid is good. And I think in women, that ferritin is crucial. Um, you know, certain people maybe get that aldosterone checked if that fits you. Uh, men are very common. We don't. We can talk about it next time. You know, hypogonadism is common, and men, most men that come to see me, it's sort of one way or another related to testosterone. So you want to get your testosterone checked. Mm -hmm. People should be proactive and advocate for themselves. And if anything seems like sort of fishy, the guys saying you take this high dose of T3, be a little cautious. People should learn about their diseases, get better, and stay healthy. Yeah. I thought this was an excellent discussion. I really appreciate your time, Dr. Friedman. As I said, I've learned from your some of your articles, and I like going to your site, The Good Hormone Health. Oh, one last question, too. DHEA and DHES, which also comes from the adrenal, do you measure right. them? Do they, do they have... You, you, you measure DHES, and then you can take DHEA. It's a medicine I find often... A lot of side effects from it. Really? Especially women, they get hair loss. Like you said, no woman mm. wants it. Greasy hair, oily skin. You really have to sort of just balance the dosing very carefully. Does it have a significance it. though if someone's, I've sometimes seen when it's high or is it very low? Does, what, what does it tell yeah, you? So a high is usually PCOS, mm. which is very common. We could talk about that some other time yeah, too. Sure. Very fascinating disease. High is usually PCOS. Low could be an adrenal or pituitary problem. You know, if it's slow, you can replace it, but sort of carefully and watch it closely. Mm -hmm. Okay, great points. Dr. Friedman, again, thank you for your time and your busy schedule. And I hope our listeners really appreciate what you had to say today. Thanks. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to The Smartest Doctor in the Room with host Dr. Dean Mitchell. You can continue this conversation on Instagram at Dean Mitchell MD, Facebook at Mitchell Medical Group, or at DeanMitchellMD.com.